but the travel can of course also occur in a low carbon world um, but the behavior changes and and i guess that's the hard thing which really regenerative tourism is a lot about it's not just a few light bulbs it's about completely you know giving voice to new players including nature including indigenous people Ora, ko Debbie Tokoingoa. I'm Debbie Clark. Kia ora, ko Josie Tokoingoa. I'm Josie Major. Welcome back to the Good Awaits podcast. This is episode two of season two of the Good Awaits podcast, and we are really excited to be welcoming Suzanne Beckin to the podcast. Suzanne's um, a globally recognised expert in sustainable tourism. You know, she's on Air New Zealand Sustainability Advisory Board. She's a principal science advisor for our Department of Conservation. So she's well-versed in these issues that we're talking about uh, in a tourism context. She's an expert in tourism management and uh, government policy and intervention. And so it was great to have her on the show to flesh out some of these challenges and opportunities that we we're hoping to look at in talking about tourism's purpose in a VUCA world. Yeah, we talked in, in the first episode about the importance of hard conversations, and this certainly was one of those. And Suzanne was willing to talk with us about some of the, the real challenges that tourism's facing, and we were really grateful for the way that she's brought some of those ideas into the podcast uh, and helped us to frame this season of, of being about the VUCA world in a very knowledgeable and and research-based way. She doesn't pull any punches. That's one of the things I love about Suzanne. And, you know, if I'm looking to any expert to really give an honest assessment of where we are, she's who I follow, she's who I turn to. So yeah, I think you'll find that in this episode that she, she speaks power to truth. Yeah. It's a challenging one, but I think there's a lot of hope in it as well. So... We started off by asking Suzanne to speak to us about what is the VUCA world and what is this context that we are living in. So Suzanne, we want to start by talking about the the context of of where we're at. Um, Debbie and I are referring to it on this podcast as, as the VUCA world, this volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world that we're in now. And obviously with the recent IPCC report that's come out with this title, Adapt or Die, um, needing to peak emissions by 2025 and, you know, aiming for net zero by 2050. These are, you know, this is a a pretty um, confronting report and situation that we find ourselves in. So can we talk a little bit about about that that context and your understanding of where we're at? Yeah, so with those IPCC reports, I guess they're not getting better. Um, they they keep coming at us, um, and the direction is really clear. Um, and then the science, because um, what they do is obviously they they review all the science, um, three thousand and plus papers in an area. So it sort of consolidates, and then it gets more precarious. And every time a report comes out, we have lost another two or three years. Really, um, the interesting thing since that adapt or die one, the the third working group on mitigation, so carbon reduction, came out as well. And one of my colleagues who actually worked on it, um, he said, oh, you know, it's it's quite depressing because, of course, um, we have a war in the Ukraine and, and that's tragic in itself and maybe also expression of sort of this precarious state of the world. But he said that that 
report basically didn't even get coverage in the media. It was one or mm. two days. Um, then, then the flippant comment was that Will Smith's punch at the Oscar ceremony got more media than the IPCC report. So, so that yeah. is sobering. Um, in a way, it says a little bit about, I guess, maybe also people's ability to absorb some of this dire information um, because we have all our limits. But the scientific facts are clear. And, and, and that's just climate. Um, what's equally concerning, um, so this is the UN decade of ecosystem restoration, because we're actually in quite a quite a um, difficult, challenging state when it comes to you know, biodiversity, ecosystems, soils, ocean, overfishing, all of that. So, so those reports come out as well. And I guess, interestingly, this time, probably this adapt or die adaptation report from the IPCC really, really strongly emphasized the connection and said the single best adaptation measure that we can do is to restore our ecosystems. Because if they don't um, get restored and, and I guess build resilience again and they tip over, well, that's our basis for, for life. And I guess that links yeah. in some ways in a nice way to tourism, doesn't it? Um, and especially here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where we put so much effort in the moment. Um, I think that's a real movement in tourism, help restore the ecosystems. And so that's um, in some ways a good way because it does address several major issues. But if you think at the root causes, we also have all these challenges um, that really are quite urgent. I mean, I keep talking about um, when the 1.5 degree report came out 2018, and I think we had something like 11 years. And now yesterday I was just part of an event um, in the evening where the chair, of course, reminded us we have eight years. <laughs> and so, mm. so it is it is urgent. Yeah, that window is is fast closing on us. Let's talk a little bit about um, sort of the existential threat that we're facing, because I don't think people really want, like you mentioned, um, this is so hard to absorb, right? People don't really want to think about it. And the other piece that came out in that that um, third paper you mentioned, that there needs to be significant behavior change. Yeah, I mean, that that's coming out more strongly now. Um, I mean, many have said that for a long time, especially when it comes to things like travel discretionary activities, non-existential in some ways. Um, of course, you could argue that livelihoods, on the other hand, depend on travel, you know, and in some countries it is truly the livelihoods of, of a community or so. So um, I guess what means discretionary and existential, but but the fact is that um, in, in that most recent IPCC report, and in particular in relation to aviation, which for us in New Zealand is just so important, that was the first time that it absolutely explicitly said that we cannot solve this with technology and it has to be changes in demand. And and I, I always hasten to add that it's not the end of tourism because we have had, I mean, even the last two years in New Zealand, we had quite good tourism. Of course, it's not the same and maybe some markets are missing and, and there's a shift, but, but the travel can, of course, also occur in a low-carbon world. Um, but the behavior changes and, and I guess that's the hard thing of... Um, maybe a perceived loss that people feel they can't have that lifestyle. But but then if you think of it, how many of us live, and we all live like kings. In the past, when society was structured differently, you had one king living like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and now we all live like kings. Um, and, and, and that's challenging. I just saw a survey yesterday in Europe about the, the Russian gas and how many people would, prepare to, would be prepared to have a cold shower. Um, and it was 10% of the population who want a cold shower to... And so that says, I mean, of course, the moment we have to, 
and COVID mm. has shown that when the circumstances are in a certain way, then you don't have a choice. But as long as we feel we have a choice, people rather not. So it's hard. That behavior change is hard. But I, I feel that um, with the speed of carbon reduction that's required, um, behavior change is necessary. So the key will be to maybe develop it in a way that it's it's potentially even and it becomes an experience. I mean, in tourism, the idea of glamping, for example, you know, there's some products um, and experiences that are actually really low carbon and are a cool, novel thing and maybe bring people closer to nature and all of that. So we need to think in that direction. This also flows on from what you've been saying is this idea of predatory delay um, that, you know, are we, those of us in tourism, recognizing that we need to make changes and yet still operating the way we've always operated in order to try and recover from the last two years, right? Try and uh, gain back some revenue. So there's there's that understanding yeah. of of those behaviors. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's right. The last two years have not helped because we have lost, I guess, um, some of the, the, the buffer or the financial capital to actually invest into the transition. Now, would we have done it um, is another question. But now, of course, many are cash strapped and and it's it's more a sort of situation of of making ends meet rather than changing the model but with that predator the predatory delay i guess one the classic example would probably be in the aviation industry where one must say the creativity of the last 30 years to come up with schemes and um you know delays and arguments of you know, um, why, for example, one can't put a carbon tax in place um, and, and why maybe market-based mechanisms should be the way to go and why now, for example, this whole offsetting is the only way um, and, and you can only have schemes that every airline subscribes to. So you go for the lowest common denominator rather than in some ways some of the global aviation bodies almost stopping any other leadership initiative with those arguments and so what that does and then maybe hiding behind some scientific uncertainty where so this whole idea of the non-carbon dioxide effects in the atmosphere which we know scientifically so you you burn fuel an aircraft and you emit carbon dioxide but it, at least twice as much um, climate impact uh, comes from other emissions, including water vapor and uh, nitrous oxides and so on. But because the scientists can't quite agree if it's between two or three times as much, the airline industry says, well, okay, then we don't count it at all, which, okay, and, but but these things are delaying. Um, yeah. and, and, and of course, in reality, we know um, the problems won't go away. And, and at some point, they will catch up with us. And I think that comes back to that urgency for change. Um, and I was at some tourism event um, a few weeks ago speaking and so, some countries that really really heavily invest in a, a, a boom like recovery and and as if nothing happened um, and I just think how long then can you because does it even make business sense yeah. if you invest right. big time so for example air, airport extensions all of that mm -hmm. infrastructure for massive tourism growth is this a sensible decision what if in five or ten years, whether it's the carbon taxes kicking in or whether it's more and more extreme weather events. And we have seen it, I mean, in every country, um, you know, I don't need to yeah. name examples, whether it's Australia or 
California wildfires or all sorts. Um, these things do not go away. So, so what would be a prudent way of planning for tourism that is truly long-term sustainable? And I don't think that fast growth model will return the dividends to the countries that they expect now just by putting the head in the sand. Yeah, that's so interesting to even just put it into into economic terms and be like, this is not even a good business decision, even though that's sort of the way it's perceived as as that traditional growth type model. Yeah, um, it's short term short term gain, but potentially yeah. long term big loss. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious about why you're still in this sector, Suzanne. Like, what sort of what keeps you working in this sector, given the state? Of things and and where we're at, and I ask you this because it's a question I have for myself as well. Um, but I'm 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 curious about yeah why why you feel that it's still worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I guess p- p- probably two things. One is that I find the people working in tourism, and maybe particularly this part of the world, and in fact, in fact, all around. I mean, there is a lot of passionate people who truly care. Mm, you know, and be in a, yeah, it's true. And and look, maybe you would get the same in manufacturing. I don't know. I haven't worked there, but I do know for a fact in tourism, there's people who just love their land. They love culture. They love sharing. They love the people dimension. They want to do. In some ways, I guess what connects those types of leaders in tourism is that common belief that maybe tourism is a better way. Than, you know, so, so And that's the second reason for me that I still feel tourism could be a vehicle. You know, it, we just need to get it right. And and if you compare with maybe other industries or ways of of um, having some form of economic activity and and creating jobs and creating experiences for people um, and adding to life and and opening them up to you know learning and fulfillment, all of these things that tourism brings. Um, it just got lost maybe in that model of the last 30 or 40 years where we pack hundreds of people in a jumbo jet, um, you know, long queues at airports, stress, and and then to a mass tourism destination. A lot of that just got lost. But that doesn't mean we can't resurrect it. So I guess I have this belief um, and, and that probably, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that keeps me going. And then you have, um, I mean, just this morning, um, some messages on LinkedIn where, I mean, especially in New Zealand, we have amazing um, leaders like Christchurch Airport with the massive solar park that are, they are planning to build. And you think that's just really cool. Um, so so it's it's good. So it's a bit of a fun now, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Thank nice. you for that. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's why we're all still here, right? Because we believe deeply in the power of travel for, you know, um, cross-cultural exchange and transforming how we view the world. I mean, I know that's why I'm still in travel because of that. So understanding the power of travel and what it can achieve and also thinking about the current state of the world and New Zealand's location in the world, what do you think tourism in Aotearoa, New Zealand, should or could look like? Yeah, now that's given, given oh, these factors. It's the, of course a million dollar question, and, and it's it's mm-hmm. absolutely timely now when we open the borders, isn't it? And we, yeah. are, I think, um, <laughs> a lot of people, um, obviously, really keen to see the return of tourism, quite rightly. But others who think, oh gosh, hopefully we haven't wasted that two year window of the whole reset and reimagining, and so what's what's going to come out of it? Um, I just tonight I actually present at a um, tourism summit in Scotland, and they asked me to 
give a bit of a synopsis of what's happening in New Zealand. And that was really great because I had to put together all these examples. And, and it's just amazing. I mean, of course, you always know the bits that are not quite working right yet. Um, you know, um, the closer you know things, uh, there's, there's gaps or there's conflicts or whatever. But on the other hand, from I went from national level to destination to individual operators. I mean, there's just so much. And the one thing that stood out to me, uh, well, several things stood out. One, of course, a really, really strong influence of indigenous thinking and worldviews and to some level spirituality and the importance of, of the land, the venua and so on. But the other thing, the partnership approach, no matter what example I pulled out. So, for example, our Tiaki promise, partnership between public private sector organizations um you know everything that i and then i use milford sound where there's really some transformational suggestions in the master plan um including that and of course it's some some things are controversial it comes back to what we discussed earlier if some things change some things also have to go and so that that air strip in Milford Sound, which the master plan in the moment basically proposes to take out, it's only a very small number of people who come by air, two percent or so. But it's an eyesore, and it's actually quite at risk from sea level rise and so on. So it's it's a good idea to pull it out. But what they've created in the master plan is a so-called regenerative spine. So you have the the length of the airstrip, but it will grow out and it will constitute walkways that connect the waterways to the left and to the right. And so there's an aerial um, image of how this will look like. And to me, it's almost symbolizing this letting nature come back yeah, and maybe nice. cutting loose some out parts, but providing you. So, so that's actually, so if we can hang on to, to these wonderful examples where we are doing things differently, um, I think we have a really good opportunity. I guess the key num the, the the key factor will be, and this is the hard one, especially politically, is, is I guess the floodgates uh, into the country. So if we open up, and so this comes to the very uncomfortable question around carrying capacity and how much volume um, do we want, um, and and do we really want every airline flying here and so on. So that that to me is the key lever. If we can manage that. Um, to a sensible level of international travel, plus the domestic tourism that we have started to, to enhance and grow a little bit in the last two years, with with the types of operators that we have and RTOs, I, I think we do have a good mix. We just don't want to spoil it by all of a sudden throwing five or six million <laughs> image and international visitors into the mix, because then we're back where we were and we can't manage it sustainably. Is there a conversation happening about capping numbers? Um, so not that I'm aware of um, formally. Um, of course, every now and then in a meeting, someone puts that on the table because it's kind of an obvious thing to put on the table. How that works in practice, um, I am not even sure because we obviously have um, agreements with countries. So so, so how protectionist almost, you, you would call that probably eco-protectionism. Mm. How we could do that Legally, I'm not sure. What, what I do know, interestingly, that in, in Queensland, in Australia, the government is currently putting $100 million into literally attracting airlines, and the airports are matching it with $100 million. So are you talking $200 million wow. um, into getting airlines to fly to Queensland, so subsidizing and incentivizing? And that's right. And, and of course, you think, 
wow, 200, and this is where I think this is the old thinking, is in, into Cairns, for example, Cairns up in the north, um, in, in tropical Queensland, totally depends on international tourism, very difficult to maintain uh, cl climatically and all that, but, but there's a big pot of money going into there. Is this, is this resilient? So, so I guess at least in New Zealand we don't have to have to dig that hole deeper. But how you could yeah. actually really actively manage so that that's an important question I think that, that really needs to be explored. One of the things that um, been thinking about. I mean, you're you're a researcher amongst amongst many other things, and I think one of the things that that I feel is that we've got somewhat of a disconnect between what's happen, happening in academia and the research that's coming through and and the practice on the ground and what's happening. So I'm curious if you can share with us sort of what you're seeing happening in that in that academic space and and also how do we how do we move more towards that being more collaborative and integrated in terms of bringing academia into the way that we we're doing tourism on the ground. That is uh, such a good question um, and such an important one. I guess the, the first part is easier to answer what's happening. Um, what I see happening in the academics or tourism field is so sustainable tourism as a field of research obviously has been establishing sort of in the last 30 years. There's a journal called Journal of Sustainable Tourism and so on. Um, and that's probably, and, and there's a lot of great work, of course, um, but that's been quite different from, there's a very, very niche field called critical studies. So critical studies in tourism are those who raise issues about inequality, about maybe systems that are flawed. You know, there's feminism in there, there's completely new, like, degrowth models. So there's critical studies. And they would be interesting, but probably... Um, Colleagues, forgive me if I say that, but marginalized in the sense that it's really only a handful of people. What I can see now with the regenerative tourism is almost those coming or the, the critical thinking, which really regenerative tourism is a lot about. It's not just a few light bulbs. It's about completely, you know, giving voice to new players including nature, including indigenous people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so bringing that, so I see a bit of a converging between the critical studies and sustainable tourism into this new regenerative tourism. And, and obviously there's also shades of some, which is maybe used the term, but really still talk about more like triple bottom line, whereas others who are really quite uh, in, a lot of interest in bringing different worldviews and different forms of knowledge. So all of that um so that's a great opportunity, and, and that's exciting. But um, how do you connect that to practice? Um, and that's what, I mean, a big topic in universities is how can we make sure we have greater impact and so on. And and there are increasing collaborations, and we see it in New Zealand um, with universities working with, you know, like, for example, Messi University, they, they do work with the Fanganoi River. And um, so, so that's happening. How we can do it even more um, I mean that that is that is an important question, um, and it goes both ways. So academics moving maybe a bit more closer in understanding policymaker needs and industry needs, and maybe the other way around. Um, the system in New Zealand doesn't exactly it's not very conducive for tourism research in terms of government funding and integrating. So there's actually a bit of a gap. Yeah, not like for example in the primary industries where we have crown research institutes. You know, so yeah. we don't have anything for tourism like a like a knowledge hub or whatever you might a center of excellence that really brings together all these stakeholders. Because I think together we probably would speak the same language and we could identify primary problems. 
and then get out and, and bring in some consultants as well, not just academics. So the whole spectrum of knowledge providers, Mataranga. Uh, so I think there's a big gap. Um, and I guess I, I've been trying for a few years to sort of create this. It's 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 a slow burn, but um, I, I think I think it would be really helpful in this transformation to have also the right knowledge and, and feed that in there. That would be great to think about that, to think about bringing all those diverse players who have an interest together. Yeah. So, so that sort of looks across a broad spectrum, and we're also interested in a discussion, you know, sort of vertically as well, like from a national level down to a local level. So, yeah. our current tourism minister is requiring all of the regional tourism organisations to engage in a, a creating destination management plans that are regenerative. Yeah. So, on the surface, that's really um, progressive and exciting. Uh, even not just on the surface, to me, that's very progressive yeah. and exciting. Absolutely. While also having inherent challenges, I think, mm. in this shift um, or this this mandate. Keen to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. No, I think generally it's absolutely the right direction to actually sort of distribute downwards, if you want, um, both in terms of financial resources, but also the, the autonomy to make decisions. Um, but at the same time, it's challenging, I guess, for a few reasons. So the RTOs and the regional tourism organizations, they often, I mean, they're small. They have to do, with a small team, they have to do so much. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of capacity. There's also, of course, a lot of old thinking, not, not old thinking in a bad way, but also, of course, now they want to put their marketing heads on and get people to their place, and that's important. Um, so at the same time then to think, well, hang on, maybe regenerative tourism means I need to restrict that. So how do you grow something and restrict something at the same time? <laughs> and that's, of course, maybe the solution then, and as an academic, it's always easy to then say something, but the doing is easier, uh, harder. The, the saying is the easy bit to say, okay, maybe you need to find products and experiences that give that higher value at lower volume. But how do you do that when you have operators there, for example, who you know you have existing investment in capital, you have certain infrastructure that you have to. That's basically the canvas you paint paint on. It's um, so it is it is challenging in practice. Um, but then, of course, we also see a lot of creativity, especially when RTRs really go out and work with the community, with the EV, with entrepreneurs. So we we see great great examples happening. It comes then back to apart from those local maybe just challenges um how does it fit because ultimately there's a national picture and tourists come into the country so it still matters what happens at national government or what we talked about earlier how many visitors come and who are they um because ultimately that that's sort of it's almost like the pipeline that feeds into a destination so i think um but 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 it, I mean the RTRs are well organized um, and they have obviously their own organization and and help. so the key will be to maintain those linkages between the different layers and and align and not government all of a sudden running one way and the RTRs another so communication and maybe the governance mechanisms to coordinate. Yeah, yeah, because I think there's a lot of hope in in those. Like you say, when the RTOs are able to go out into their communities and really work in that that place based way, which is we understand to be you know the sort of key to the way that we do regenerative tourism being place based, but at the same time having those systems and structures in place so that that can actually support them in a practical way in terms of funding and and even just the politics and governance, as you say. I like what you said earlier as well about um, regenerative tourism being about giving voice to new players. And I think 
some of that is playing out at the at the regional level as well as they're figuring out who are the pl- who are the players or sort of new players, yeah. not new players. Yeah. Sorry, the existing yeah. but now having yeah. a voice. <laughs> who are the voices that have been left out of yeah. the conversation, perhaps um, previously? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And and I guess with shifts in power, because ultimately that's what it is. Again, it means that some people who might have previously had a lot of influence might have to share that, mm-hmm. um, and and that's that's a transition. Um, we see that play out a little bit in the cruise ship industry, although I'm not quite sure how it will play out. But um, it's been in, uh, quite a bit of media coverage in the last few weeks because Australia is opening and New Zealand isn't yet, and in some ways, because um, the cruise ships. I want to hear, well, I just use it now, the word bully. Um, <laughs> because because they do put pressure, they you know, and they, they then frighten uh, people and say, oh, well, if you don't open now, then we drop you off the itinerary and so on. And then um, I mm-hmm. guess some, some places get scared and think, oh, maybe it wasn't that bad after all to have it. But, of course, we lack the data to truly assess because I would then say, well, so what? Then the cruise ship just doesn't come because it probably didn't, much good to the destination anyway or, or just give me the data that it really i mean the bay of plenty for example um in the moment is, is struggling with that because they want some cruise ships but they don't actually want the three thousand passenger ones mm. and so how strong is your negotiating power so for example in the bay of plenty where they do have a really good system with community consultation and so let's say the community says actually we don't want those so what's the next step and all of a sudden standing up to someone rather powerful and say, well, hang on, you can't bring those ships in. That's a big shift. Yeah, it's a huge shift. And it's interesting because I've heard some, you know, I've, I've read some recent articles about the cruise industry trying to go carbon zero, which would be fantastic if they did. But that's just one piece of the, the picture, right? right? When we talk about impact from cruise ships. That's right. That's right. So... Where do you see hope, Suzanne? We've had quite, you know, quite a bit of doom and gloom in this conversation. So we'd love to um, to hear where you see hope or opportunity for our sector, particularly in, in Aotearoa. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do think the hope um, comes from all the amazing, inspirational people and initiative that we actually see um, in New Zealand, and it's sometimes probably important self-help to actually really delve into that rather than i mean you know the ipcc reports and that comes in and you you chew on that and think oh gosh that's really bad and you throw in a few other global issues um, but then if you go down and and check what's happening here and what's happening here and, and you see those amazing i guess passionate people who really try to make a difference um i think that that does give you hope i, I mean that gives me hope every time um and then you almost feel ashamed that you sort of let it slip a bit and got a bit gloomy, but uh, we've got to work together on that. So I think I think there's enough, um, at least in this country, for sure. Um, but there are global efforts as well. And and then I keep telling myself, and, and um, who knows if it's actually just anecdotal or for real, but apparently it only takes 3% of the population for a revolution. You, you've heard that figure, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I have heard that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to reach a tipping point, right? That's to really right. shift things. Exactly. Yeah, and, I have and heard that. Exactly. And whether it's true or not, but if you keep yourself telling that and the 3%, and it probably is definitely true that it only takes a small number of reactive people to tip a system and 
And so every one of us and everyone who will be listening to this podcast will be part of this. Um, and so collectively, one can one can tip it towards a better state. Mm, nice. I love that. We have some really uh, inspiring guests coming up this season that we're really excited to share with our listeners. And there is so much hope in the conversations we're having. So, yeah, that's that's so great. That's, Good on you for doing yeah. that and, and in some way spreading and connecting because that's the thing when you have all these little, it's like little drops on a window, um, each doing their mm. own thing. And once they combine, mm-hmm. you know, and you can, with the podcast, provide a little bit of that glue to combine them. Um, and and um, people don't feel alone in their mission, and they know that other people are doing the same thing. So that's that's a fantastic initiative. Yeah, we hope so. Yeah. Thank you. I was just, <laughs> just a thought about the um, the shift uh, that regenerative thinking has allowed for me is from this mechanistic model where it's easy to see yourself as like a tiny cog in a in a big machine, right? Um, whereas in a living systems model it's much easier to see yourself as part of an interconnected sort of systems and ecosystems and communities. Yeah. And I've found a lot of hope in just in that, in that shift in, in thinking as well. That's great. No, that's so true. So true. So what regenerates you, Suzanne? Where do you find purpose and passion in your work or even, even not in your work? I mean, I, I, I do, I do get obviously revived just like many people, you know, just being in the garden or being in nature and with my family or even with my cats, um, you know, a funny thing, but um, it's so true. Cats can be so soothing, um, you yeah. know, and, and so fully enjoying life. And then you think, oh, I wish I was a cat. Um, <laughs> but. That's great. But, yeah, but but actually, a lot of a lot of the energy does actually come from conversations exactly like this. And then you ask yourself sometimes, is this actually work or is it life? Because work and life blend in that case. Because it's all about our future, right? And and so in that sense, I feel extremely privileged that I can call work, but also I guess um, it, it gives me energy, spirit. Just that feeling that you're doing something, which which is great, and that revives me. Um, and then, um, yeah, so that is uh, it's almost you would probably call that a positive feedback loop in systems thinking, right? So the more you do these things, like this podcast, then you think, oh, that it's it's great. Um, and in in just talking to people, seeing things um, happening, that revives you to do more. I think that's that's probably it. I love this conversation with Suzanne. Uh, There's so much in here to unpack. Initially, just her talking about the urgency, right, that you and I felt Josie and she really did bring that um, to the forefront of the conversation. It's just that we, we have a closing window. And I liked her immediate sort of recognition of where tourism has potential, that, you know, the single best adaptation measure we can do is ecosystem restoration. And that's where she sees tourism as having a massive opportunity to engage in that work and and acknowledge that we're doing that in New Zealand quite well, which is something for us to be proud of, I think. Yeah, I feel I feel quite quite challenged by the idea of being being proud of ecosystem restoration and tourism because I think there's also a lot of a lot of ecosystem destruction that is caused by our sector. But I think there's a lot of potential in in the sector to be able to do some of that ecosystem restoration work and 
we have the power in terms of education and storytelling and bringing people to see these spaces that, that I think that can be really, really powerful. Suzanne, you know, there were parts of this episode that were quite doom and gloom Mm -hmm. about where we're at and very real. Mm. But she also said, you know, this isn't, she doesn't see this as the end of travel, despite everything else that she spoke to. She really sees the the potential for tourism to exist in a low carbon world. And I found a lot of hope in that. Yeah, I think that for me, that is a good reminder, right? That especially in New Zealand, our borders have been closed for two years and we did have domestic tourism. And she acknowledged that doesn't replace international tourism, but it's about how do we think about the shift that's required away from this default back to business as usual? Because I see as our borders opening, so many just engaging in that. And, you know, we talked about predatory delay, right? So the bounce back mentality, how do we make the shifts required for for even our own businesses to become sustainable. Yeah, and I think I think what's interesting to me about this conversation about bouncing back is that it sort of seems to be a conversation about either or, you know, about either we bounce back or we innovate or we evolve. But to me that that innovation, that evolution is how we bounce back. That's how we're going to survive and continue to and and continue to address coming challenges and become more resilient. So I, I yeah. see those things as, as really closely connected, you know? Yeah, that's a great um, observation, Josie, this either-or narrative that's out there. I've heard that in our industry that now's not the time to be talking about innovation. We need to be just surviving. And so it is, the narrative is that it's either-or. It's, it's put up as two mutually exclusive ways forward. But you're right, it's absolutely not. And and is it smart business sense? Is it a smart, sustainable business model to be investing in old structures and models knowing what we're going to face in the future? It's like a complete denial of of uh, what we're going to be facing or, or a lack of acknowledgement of what we're going to face and, you know, sort of ostrich mentality, head in the sand, let's just keep peddling the same old ways that we've done it and that'll get us out of this. Yeah, I think this is really challenging for our sector to think in this way are we rethinking our entire business model and I guess that's the question that we're asking in in this podcast like what is tourism's purpose in a VUCA world and you know let's not downplay how big of a question that is because that purpose might be something completely different to the narrative that we've we've held what does it mean for us to evolve as a sector yeah, and the challenges, because that's a shift in who has power, right? She talked about if some things, if we're going to change things, some things have to go. There was a lot of challenging parts to this conversation with Suzanne. And I think what sort of brought me back in terms of the the hope or the, you know, how do we move forward was her talking to these these themes that she pulled out for a presentation around New Zealand tourism and what what is the kind of essence of New Zealand tourism and and she talked about the how everywhere she looked for examples it was all about collaboration and i thought that was really awesome like i just felt really inspired by that because i think we've talked about that quite a bit on this podcast about how the way we're going to move forward is is by working collaboratively um so in the context of this really scary, challenging conversation about the VUCA world and what that means for our sector, 
that little piece of, you know, the power of collaboration yeah. really stood out for me. Yeah. We want to thrive. We thrive together. There's no thriving in isolation. She also talked about the influence of Indigenous thinking and the partnerships with local iwi and how that gives her hope as well. And that's about giving voice to players who haven't traditionally been at the table because they've been left out of the conversation. This has been a difficult harvest for us, but I just wanted to speak to that because I think how difficult it is to talk about this is is the point, right? <laughs> like we spoke to um, yeah. Alina and Joanna last, last episode about this shift in stories and that's really what we're trying to do here is, is bring some of these new narratives into the conversation and it's really challenging. Yeah, thanks for saying that, Josie. I think we have struggled to create this harvest and I think for me personally it's – I think about specific people I know in tourism who are behind the businesses mm-hmm. um, and knowing the impact that these changes, these changes we have to make, understanding the impact that's going to have on people on a, on a personal level. Not easy conversations, but conversations we have to have. And we have to do it with compassion and kindness and empathy and urgency. Yeah. And we need to stay connected to our own reasons for doing this work and our and our why. Uh, and I, I asked this, Suzanne this question in the podcast, you know, given the state of things, what keeps you working in tourism? And she spoke to the passion of the people in this sector, um, as well as the power of, of travel as a, as a vehicle for change. So... We wanted to pose that question to to you listeners. If you are working in this sector in, in tourism, we'd love to hear what your why is, what keeps you in this sector, what inspires you about working in, in tourism. And we'd, we'd love to hear your responses, whether you want to reach out to us via email, uh, our contact details are in the show notes, or you can join us in our, our LinkedIn group, Good Awaits, a regenerative tourism network. So we want to thank Suzanne very much for her time and honesty and contribution to this conversation we really appreciate it and we also want to shout out a huge thanks to unesco for supporting us and recognizing us with seed funding to make the second season happen if this conversation resonates with you then we do produce it all ourselves we host it and create it Uh, we work with clary macklin to produce it but everything else is done by us, Josie Major and Debbie Clark. So we ask you to please go over to your podcast app and rate and review us because that would really help us out. Thanks again for listening to Good Awaits. It's great to have you with us on this journey. Mm-hmm.